Good morning, Saints. Hey, I'm just going to give you a little, uh, little bit of, I don't know, it's not really background. I just got back last night, um, five-day trip to California working on video recording parts of two different projects out there. So kind of dual focus while I was there preaching this morning, another focus. Tomorrow I'm back in St. Louis video recording more parts of those same two projects. Tomorrow night, video recording my current worship seminar. And then Tuesday, video recording a totally different project. All of that to say that if I veer off the notes this morning, just kind of bear with me, all right? Because my mind is just like all over the place. So I'm just giving you a heads up. And you can pray for me for the next couple of days because this is going to be a, a lot of stuff that I got going on. So we're in this sermon series about the attributes of God, right? And if you remember, Daryl, a couple of weeks ago, shared from Jeremiah 9.24, where God says, if you want to boast in something, boast in the fact that you know and understand me. That's what he really wants. He wants us to know him. He wants us to understand him. And that's what this whole sermon series is all about, that we get to know God. But the fact is that, that you and I, Trying to really understand God, you know, even through all the things that we're sharing in the sermon series, it's like we're peering through a little tiny keyhole into this gigantic room, and we think we've got a pretty good handle on it. All we're seeing is this little tiny sliver, and there's so much more. God is so much bigger than we can possibly ever even imagine. We're trying to give you a, a few little snippets, but that's about the best that we're going to get here on earth. So you understand, we're not getting the whole picture. Today, I'm going to talk about an attribute that I think is often misunderstood, and that's God's sovereignty. So let's pray. Father, right now, as we approach your word, we are once again inviting you to speak into us. God, we know that it, at creation, you spoke and things were, were created, things were brought into being, things were brought into life. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would do that here today. Would you speak into us, O oh God, and bring forth life and bring forth newness within us? Not this, just that we understand, but God, that you are indeed at work within us through your word causing those things to come into being. And Lord, we thank you that you'll do that because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God is sovereign. Early in the book of Acts, if you remember, Peter and John encounter this guy that's lame and he's begging for money and they say, we don't have any money, but we're going to give you something else in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And so because of that, Peter and John have to go before the, the Jewish council and they're told to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, stop doing the things that they're doing. The point that I really want to get to is after they're released, they pray. And here's what they pray. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And it goes on and talks more about the, the, the sovereignty of God. But right at the beginning, sovereign Lord, that Greek word there means absolute ruler. Oddly, it's where we get our word despot from um, that has kind of a negative connotation today, but the original meaning was simply absolute ruler, not just the guy with whom the buck stops, but the guy with whom every buck stops, the supreme authority, the absolute ruler. Jesus' first disciples understood that God is sovereign. 
We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, if you will. This idea that God is sovereign is really closely related to that idea, but it's different. Sovereignty is more than just having the power to do something. That's God's omnipotence. He has the power. Sovereignty means that he exercises that power, that he engages it for his purposes and his plans. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the line between those two things is pretty blurry. Okay, in, in order to be uh, sovereign, God has to be all-powerful. And the fact that he's all-powerful makes him sovereign, all right? So, so they're interconnected, but they're not exactly the same. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and following, it says this, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose." Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. If that isn't clearly a God who is sovereign, I'm misreading something there. And and please kind of bear with me here. I'm going to balance this, all right? But I need to start by laying a foundation that God is indeed sovereign. Uh, Psalm 135 Starting in verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. God is, some, is, is sovereign. God somehow rules and reigns over everything. Think back to the Old Testament story of, of Daniel, the book of Daniel. One day, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the, the roof of his palace, and he's admiring everything. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? In other words, Look what I've done. I'm something here, huh? I mean, that's what he's saying. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And immediately it all happened, just like God said. Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He ate grass like an animal. And why? Because he thought he had become all-powerful. And God said, nope, as a matter of fact, I'm going to show you you're not. And then Nebuchadnezzar finally gave up. The end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is clearly sovereign. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is sovereign. But here's what this clearly does not mean. 
It does not mean that everything that happens is God's will or that He is guiding every action to occur. See, if we think like that, then it naturally leads us to the place where we're going, all right, if God is sovereign, if He can do anything that He wants to, then why, is it, why doesn't He just heal all sickness? What, why, why do terrorists get to, get to come in and attack? Why is there sin at all? Why do p- wicked people prosper? And if we start down that path, then it's just a really small step to begin to make it personal. Why did my baby die? Why did, that, why did that sick person that I prayed for not get healed? Why did my friend or why did I lose my job and can't find another one? What, why, why, why am I still suffering from whatever, you fill in the blank, when I have sought God repeatedly and nothing's changed? See, those why questions are impossible to answer well if we think that God is the puppet master who is manipulating each and every circumstance. Andrew Womack said it like this, if we believe that God wills everything, good or bad, to happen to us, it gives us some temporary relief from confusion and condemnation, but in the long term, it slanders God, hinders our trust in God, and leads to passiveness. And he's exactly right. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Everything that happens is not God's will. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That verse is clearly telling us that it is not God's will that people perish. And yet we know that people are perishing, right? James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you understand that verse, clearly there are some things that are from God, some things that are from the devil. We're supposed to submit to God the things that are from him. We're supposed to resist the devil, the things that are from him. You know, that word resist there means to actively fight against. So if we say, well, whatever happens, happens, that's not actively fighting against. Are you with me? Let me try to offer you a different perspective. Because God is sovereign and we are made in his image, you and I have been granted a dimension of sovereignty. Now, hang with me here. Any characteristic of God that we have is limited. You know, you and I have knowledge, but we don't have all knowledge. We have been granted a dimension of power, but we don't have all power. We have patience, but we don't have unlimited patience like God does. All of those characteristics that we have that are like God are limited in our lives. We have them, just not to the same degree, right? So in the same way, our sovereignty is limited. We can, if we want to, we can rebel against God. He won't, at least won't usually, force us to do what he wants us to do. He allows us to make, us our, make our own choices. He has granted us a free will. That's a, a term that you and I would understand a little bit better. I just happen to think that free will lines up with sovereignty in our lives. Now, there are some people who would suggest that Because of God's sovereignty, we don't actually have a free will. I read one writer who said this, we do not have have ultimate self-determination, but we will all give an account to God for our choices. That that statement to me seems self-defeating. How can God judge us for our choices 
if we don't actually have the freedom to, to make and live out those choices? I mean, that doesn't even make any sense, does it? And a couple of weeks ago, Daryl said that, that God could have made us robots. And it's true, he could have, but he didn't. Instead, he gave us a free will. Think back to the, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and wor to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God really, if you, if you understand what's going on there, God is giving Adam and Eve a choice. He, he, didn't, he didn't build a wall around that tree. He didn't put a, an electric fence with razor wire on the top. He's giving them the option. They can eat of it. He's telling them not to. They can, but if they do, there's going to be consequences. He's given them a free will. We have a limited amount of sovereignty in and of ourselves. Look, look at it this way. The Lord predicted that Judas was going to betray him, but Judas was still uh, accountable for that betrayal. We have a free will. We have a dimension of sovereignty, but ultimately God is still fully sovereign. Think about it like this. I read an interesting illustration. Suppose there is an, an earthly king. He is ruling over a, an, an earthly kingdom. He's, he's the, the main guy there, all right? So the king issues this decree that any of his subjects who come and pledge their allegiance to him, he will protect them, he will bless them. So there are a lot of people that do that. They come and they swear their loyalty to him. But there's others who refuse to do that. They're rebellious, they don't want to have anything to do, do with that. So when enemies invade, then the king has promised to protect and take care of those who have sworn their allegiance. So their, their property, their belongings, even their lives, he is helping them in the midst of that invasion. Are you with me? He's not sworn to take care of those others. So think about this for a minute. Did the king at any time during that story give up his sovereignty? No. Maybe look at it from a different direction. Was he less sovereign because some people refused to swear their loyalty to him? No, not at all. Did he at any time lose control over what he governed? No, he didn't. But here's the deal. The fate of each group was determined by their own choices. Are you following me? Deuteronomy 11, beginning in verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the, the way that I am commanding you today. God will let you do what you want. You have a free will. It's up to you. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all, his children, all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. God is sovereign, and as we choose rightly, he gives his blessing into our lives. Let me give you a uh, kind of a small illustration of this, how this kind of plays out in our lives. Think about this. There is a chess master 
very best chess player on the planet, very best chess player who has ever lived. But he's not proud. He's not egotistical. He wants to help others improve in their chess game. And so he will play any comers. Beginner, expert, makes absolutely no difference. Anybody can come and play him. So one day a young man comes and wants to challenge him. And so the young man starts off, makes a good move, but the, the master counters and keeps happening and ultimately the master wins. They play 20 games every time the master wins. Anybody who's watching this game, they're, they're going, there's no doubt at all about the outcome. We know what's going to happen. Um, the, the master didn't have any trouble winning those games. Now, when we talk about God's sovereignty and our free will, some people imagine that God has, he, he's, he's the playwright, and he has completely scripted everything from beginning to end in our lives. Every detail is all scripted out. Other people think that God is kind of sitting on the side, observing as we write our own script without any intervention from him at all. See, I think both of those views are problematic from a biblical perspective. If he has scripted every detail beforehand, then we really don't have any freedom. But if we're totally scripting it, then God has no involvement at all. See, I think a better image is that chess game that I just described. The novice, that's you and me, we, we move our pieces around the board trying to play well, do a good job. We've got some strategy in mind and maybe some of the moves that we make are pretty good. Maybe others are not so much. Or is that just me? <laughs> but with every move that we make, the master responds with wisdom and experience that is so far beyond us that we can't even begin to imagine. And God's moves aren't, they're not pre-programmed. They are responding to what we do. Now, I, I read that illustration and I thought it was pretty good. I shared it with the other elders and they pointed out that there were a couple of things that are kind of not quite right in there. There's a couple of other layers that really that illustration doesn't take into account. So let me, let me make this a little bit bigger for you. Picture the chess game that we just talked about. But now along with that chess game, some people who are watching, every once in a while they'll come up and they'll whisper in your ear about an idea for a, a move that you should make and maybe some of them are not so good moves. And sometimes you actually take that advice and make a not so... Anybody with me? And then, and then along with that... Every, see, we're, we're, dealing, we're dealing with the devil and the world, okay? So uh, along with that, every once in a while, a big wind comes and, and knocks one or two of our, our pieces off the board. Are, are, you with, are you with me on that one? And yet God is never rattled by any of it. In every situation, he's responding with wisdom. He reacts in a way that is to ensure that whatever you and I do somehow ultimately fits into his plan. I mean, that's just, that's mind-boggling to me. And that doesn't mean that all of those things that happen are God's will. Understand that. There's some things that are clearly not his will, but somehow he causes all of them to work together for our good. That verse, Romans 8, 28, where he says that 
God causes everything to work together for our good. He, that, to me, that indicates that, that God's sovereignty is being guided by his, his mercy and his love. You know how I've talked a couple of times about how God's various attributes work together? Well, that's what we're seeing right here. What we need to understand is that God's sovereignty is guided by his love and his mercy. He's not vindictive toward his people. His primary motivation is love. And I think that's really, really, really important for us to get. He's not trying to make us suffer for the sake of suffering. I have a, uh, I have a friend named John. I met John more than 20 years ago. He's, he was the full-time worship leader at a church in California. And uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, but in the ensuing years, John went to a couple of other churches in a couple of other states and Let's just say that they were not healthy situations. I'm going to not paint the picture quite as bleak as it really was. And he got kind of chewed up and spit out. He's a very, very gifted worship leader. But in the midst of those two situations, he also went through, in part because of those situations, a pretty ugly divorce. And it just left John reeling. For the last 12 years, he has been a public high school teacher. Hasn't been in ministry in several years. This last fall, John met Chris, a guy who also works at that public high school. Chris also happens to be a part-time assistant pastor, full-time IT director for this high school. And Chris got to hang out with John a little bit, invited him to their church. Long story short, the church seems like a pretty healthy situation. John officially joined the church in January. And what you need to understand is that Chris has been trying for quite some time to find another job. And he applied for numerous different positions for which he was imminently qualified for and not a single callback. Nothing. Two weeks after John joined their church, Chris applied for another job, and within two weeks, he had three interviews and was hired. And both John and Chris will tell you that they're convinced that God kept Chris at that school, even though Chris didn't want to stay there, are you following me, so that John could get into a healthy church situation. Anybody clicking with this today? Some of you have heard me share this story before. I just think it's so incredibly profound. True story from the 1930s written by a man's granddaughter. He was a carpenter. Story took place during the Great Depression. One day the man was at his church helping out. He was crating up some clothing that was going to be sent to an orphanage in China. Now, you know, you and I think, why well, don't they just grab some cardboard boxes and stick the clothes in? Well, that wasn't really an option in the 1930s, all right? So, carpenter comes, builds some wooden crates, puts the clothes in, crates them up, ships them off. That's how they did it. And so that's what he did. And that day he was driving home and he reached up into his shirt pocket for his glasses and they weren't there. And so he went back to the church looking for them frantically, couldn't find them, and finally came to the recognition that what had happened is at some point during the day, he had leaned over one of those crates, 
the glasses had fallen into the crate and they were now on their way to China. And what you have to understand is that he had just bought those glasses that morning. And with six kids at home, and the height of the Great Depression, the $20 he spent on those glasses was an awful lot of money. And he was mad. And he was mad at God. So on his way home, he was crying out to God, it's not fair, I've been very faithful in giving of my time and money to your work, and now this. <laughs> Several months later, the, uh, the, the director of the orphanage he was an American missionary. He was home on furlough, visiting the various churches that had helped support that orphanage. And he visited many different ones, and he also visited the church of the guy who had lost his glasses. And that morning, he shared something. He shared what he normally shared, but he also shared something that he didn't normally share at the other churches. He said this, but most of all, I must thank you for the glasses you sent last year. You see, the communists had swept through the orphanage, destroying everything, including my glasses. I was desperate. Even if I had the money, there was simply no way of replacing those glasses. Along with not being able to see well, I experienced headaches every day, so my coworkers and I were much in prayer about this. Then your crates arrived. When my staff removed the covers, they found a pair of glasses lying on top. And then he paused just long enough to let the words sink in. And still gripped with the wonder of it all, he continued. He said, folks, when I tried on those glasses, it was as though they had been custom made just for me. I want to thank you for being a part of that. And most of the people there in the congregation that day, were, they were grateful for the testimony. It's always cool to hear God did something really neat like that. But they had no idea because nobody remembered donating any glasses. Nobody except a carpenter was sitting near the back of the church that day with tears of joy streaming down his face because he recognized that God had used him in spite of himself. And here's the deal. I think sometimes God does those kind of things because we are not listening as closely to him as we should be. I mean, think about it. Don't you think if, if he would have heard, if that carpenter would have heard that I want you to send your glasses to that director in the orphanage um, because they're, they're exactly the right prescription for him, don't you think he would have done it? I'm pretty sure he would have, actually. I do. But we don't listen well enough. And so God kind of every once in a while overrules us. Even with our free will, somehow God is so sovereign. And, but... but Again, that sovereignty is guided by the fact that he is merciful, that he is loving. He's so, so gracious toward us. Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. They, they rebelled again and again. The Lord obviously didn't like that. He didn't want them to be rebellious. It broke his heart. But they did it anyway. And he let them. He'll let us get away with it. Some of you won't like this statement, but there is a, there's a statement that I hear regularly in our society, especially from Christians. And even though it's true, the way that it's said uh, just drives me crazy. Everything happens for a reason. And, and, and see, when, when people say that, 
it's, it's, it's in the context of something really bad happening, and we're excusing the, the badness as though, well, of course this happened, and God planned this, and we just don't see the whole plan. Actually, sometimes bad things happen because we make stupid choices. Sorry. Now, that's not always the reason. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a sinful world or because of other people's choices. But God isn't the one who puts devastation on us, if you will. He doesn't bring sickness into our lives. He's not the one that causes, thrusts evil upon us, if you will. So you and I have a free will and God is sovereign. Think about this. Do you remember? Do you remember the Christians in the book of Acts were dispersed out of Jerusalem? Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You know, that, that was, I think in, in many ways, that was a really ugly situation that happened. God's people were being persecuted. They were being beaten. Some were even being killed. This is, this is earthly authorities who are, are clearly going against what God wants. And yet, at the same time, God used that dispersion to spread the gospel in ways that wouldn't have otherwise happened. How do you put all that together? That is just mind-boggling to me. So we human beings, we have a free will. God is ultimately still in control. Again, does that mean everything that happens is, is, is the will of God? No, clearly not. The sinful world that we live in, our own choices are going to affect our lives and the lives of those around us, but somehow God is still in control even in the midst of that. Th think about it this way. If he's not, if he's not ultimately in control, then how could he make that promise that all things are going to work together for good for those that love him? See, he couldn't make that declaration if he is not holding the final cards. Couldn't. All right, so what does all this mean for you and me in practical terms? Let me start to make this real for you. Do you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? I think we titled that wrong. I think it's really Jesus and his disciples feeding the 5,000. Do you, I mean, think about it. What, what, what did he say beforehand? You give them something to eat. Jesus could have done it much better on his own. He could have snapped his fingers and a five-course meal would have appeared right in front of every person there. Would that be too hard for him? No, he could have done it. He could have done it much better, much more efficiently, and yet he chose to involve his followers. That's what God does. God rarely intervenes in people's lives just on his own. Most of the time he works through folks like you and me. And, and let me say, you know, Trina shared earlier about the, uh, the, the Muslims who have dreams. Okay, Tom, that kind of goes against what you just said. I don't think it does because I'm convinced that God wouldn't be doing that kind of stuff if there weren't people praying for those people to have those dreams and those visions. Think about the, uh, think about the Old Testament story of Esther. If you think about that story, God could have on his own ended the whole thing by simply wiping out the nemesis Haman. 
Would have been all taken care of. Would have been all done real fast, right? But he didn't. Instead, Esther and Mordecai and other people around them fasted and prayed. Mordecai encouraged Esther to go before the king, even though it could have cost her her life. God worked through people in that situation. God rarely intervenes in situations in what we might describe as a, a supernatural way just on his own. Nearly always he works through people. I just said you know, that uh, Esther and Mordecai and the others prayed. You know, the first time that word pray is found in our English Bibles is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. If you remember, Abraham is in Gerar. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sees Sarah, Abraham's wife. She must have been really good looking because Abimelech said that he wanted her for his own. Abraham was scared. He said, she's my sister. Great guy. Um, and, and so Abimelech feels perfectly justified in taking her into his palace. But once she's there, Abimelech has a dream from God, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. What an interesting statement. Why, why didn't God just say, hey, give her back and you'll be fine? Why was it necessary for Abraham to pray for Abimelech? See, God works through his people. He has chosen, he could do it better on his own, but he's chosen to work through you and me and through our prayers. And there's so many, so many illustrations of that in scripture. One of my favorites, all-time favorites, and maybe you've heard me share about this before, story of King Hezekiah. If you remember at one point, Hezekiah was gravely ill and through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke to the king and he said, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. Think about it. That should have been the end of the story. The sovereign God has spoken. The maker of all has rendered his judgment. Who could possibly change the course of events at that point? Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And Isaiah was not even out of the courtyard of the palace. And God spoke to him again, said, go back and tell him, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. God's judgment was altered because Hezekiah prayed. Although God is all-sufficient, self-sufficient within himself, he has chosen to work through you and me. He uses us to bring blessings to other people. I believe there are some here today that you have been waiting for God or others to do the things that he has called you to do. You've had the idea, who am I? And I don't know who you are fully, but if he's drawn you into his kingdom, it is not so that you can sit on the sidelines and be a spectator. God wants to work through your life. 
He's sovereign. He could do it better without you. Sorry, just being honest. He could do it better without me. But he's chosen to work through you and through me. It's another part of this practical side, if you will, that I think we need to understand. Because God is sovereign, his side always wins. It was during the darkest days of apartheid in South Africa. The government had decided to shut down a rally that was scheduled. They figured we'll just squelch the opposition. We won't give them a voice. We're not going to let this rally go on. But Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I talked about him in a recent sermon. He was the, the single loudest human voice in getting rid of apartheid in South Africa. He decided that since they're not going to let us have the rally, we're going to have a church service. So that day, St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town, South Africa was packed with people. But outside of the cathedral, hundreds of police officers showed up. They were clearly trying to intimidate the worshipers. And while Tutu was preaching the officers actually came into the sanctuary and lined the walls with their guns in plain view and they took out notebooks and started writing down what the archbishop was saying. Talk about attempted intimidation. But Archbishop Desmond Tutu wasn't about to be intimidated because he knew that God was sovereign. And he preached against the evils of that apartheid concept of separating blacks and whites. At one point, he actually addressed the police directly, and I love this. He said, you are powerful. You are very powerful, but you're not God's, and I serve a God who cannot be mocked. So since you've already lost, since you've already lost, he, he repeated that. I love that. <laughs> since you've already lost, I invite you today to come and join the winning side. The congregation erupted into singing and dancing. The police didn't know what to do. Their attempted at intimidation hadn't worked at all because Desmond Tutu understood that God is sovereign. He wasn't. What can man do to me? God's on my side. He's with me. Let me add one more thought to this whole issue. In case you couldn't tell, this probably should have been four or five sermons. All right, sorry. But this is something that I think is, is vital for us to recognize before we close. H how do we respond to the sovereignty of God? When, when we recognize that there is indeed a God who is, is ruling and reigning, sovereign, what's our response to that? Ravi Zacharias, in his really, really good book, uh, The Grand Weaver, he shared a great story. In Chiang Mai, Thailand, you will find a house called Ban Sanuk. It literally means fun house. As you enter, you see a group of people of varying ages involved in weaving. Here, for example, is 25-year-old Batner Bain. His demeanor, his bouncing walk, and his contagious smile make you want to pull a chair over and watch him at work. His friends call him Two, that's T-U, okay? Two looks up and smiles and says, I'm weaving a giant wave. I want to weave colorful patterns of waves and make the cloth as big as the wide ocean so that I'll have enough space to play and swim in my dreams. Laughter fills his voice. He uses swari, the Japanese technique of weaving, to do his work. 
Twelve of his friends surround him, each doing the same thing, yet each with a different design in mind. They dream up their designs and fulfill their yearnings in this fun-filled home. But what makes it so special? Of the 13 here, three have physical disabilities, six have Down syndrome, including two, one is autistic, and the other three have learning or developmental disabilities. As you talk to two, you notice a bright-eyed woman standing nearby watching his moves and listening to his description of his work. Then she gently interjects her own words. This is my son. He has now sold 60 of his creations. When he receives the payment for each one, he hands it to me and says, this is yours because without you, I never would have made it. Even in his debilitation, he knows that neither the work of art nor his life itself would have occurred but for the mother who conceived him, carried him, and loved him, Down syndrome and all. Now as he creates, he recognizes and acknowledges that ultimately she is the one who has made his creations possible. And so he brings his earnings and sets them at her feet. Oh, that you and I would have that kind of an attitude toward a sovereign God that we recognize that anything that we have is simply a gift from Him, from the one who loves us more than we can begin to imagine. God is sovereign and yet somehow He has decided to work through you and me. He is doing His work through us, His co-laborers, if you will. So we thank Him, we praise Him because without Him, we're nothing. Apart from the mercy of a sovereign God, you and I couldn't even draw our next breath. But we do as He allows it. We're going to receive communion together. Then we're going to go back into worship. When we go back into worship, I just want you to keep all of this in mind that God is sovereign and it's only because of what he grants to us that we have anything. But right now, as we, as we receive communion together, I, I, want you to, I want you to take this time to, to, to rededicate yourself, to, to trusting and, and to co-laboring with God in what he brings into your life. We're not just out there on our own. He's leading, he's guiding us. He is sovereign. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word today. God, thank you for the truth of your word that even though we are sinful human beings, you still have chosen to work through the likes of us. And God, we ask that, you, we, that we would first see better the ways that you want to work through our lives and then that we would willingly walk in those things and that we would glorify you in the midst of it. Amen. Amen.